1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Before anything, I want to say thank you for your generosity with our Union Gospel Mission Radiothon yesterday because of your uh, compassionate uh, giving. Lots of women on the streets in Portland who otherwise would have no home will find a place of safety and security. So thank you very much. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. He's the author of Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first-hand account of World War II. This is such a fascinating group of uh, of, um, Air Force pilots uh, who had to fight very hard for the right to participate in World War II with dignity. We'll talk with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart when he joins us later this hour. Also want to mention James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Appreciate that very much. First, taking a look at uh, some of the day's headlines, the president says that he would want to hear information on 2020 rivals from foreign governments. The outrage followed. Democrats uh, were upset after the president said in an interview on Wednesday that he would be willing to listen to foreign governments if they approached him with information on a political rival. I think I'd want to hear it. I think you uh, might want to listen. There isn't anything wrong with listening, he said in an interview with ABC News' George Stephanopoulos. Trump added that he would not necessarily contact the FBI if such an approach was made, fueling Democrats' ire. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, a 2020 candidate for president, tweeted, it's time for Congress to begin impeachment hearings. Well, a comment like that doesn't merit. You'd have to have other um, issues. And she's already called for impeachment. But nonetheless, this increased her ire and that of others. Still, Trump supporters point out that Democrats may be hypocrites on the issue as they failed to condemn fellow Democrats, including Representative Hillary Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee for funding the creation of an infamous and discredited anti-Trump Steele dossier by former British spy Christopher Steele. Sean Hannity called the Trump-Stefanophilus interview a non-story and a genius sidestep by the president for his foes-in-the-media mob. The interview was released hours after House Judiciary Committee Democrats announced that former White House Communications Director Hope Hicks has agreed to testify before the panel next week on special counsel Robert Mueller's report. When will it end? Well, the intrigue surrounding vacation spots in the Dominican Republic deepened uh, on Wednesday with the news that Jonathan Corcoran, a retired New Jersey businessman and brother of ABC Shark Tank judge Barbara Corcoran, was found dead in a hotel room there in April. Jonathan Corcoran's death was first reported by the gossip site TMZ and confirmed uh, by other news outlets by Emily Burke, Barbara Corcoran's assistant. The revelation comes as the popular Caribbean island or vacation spot is making worldwide headlines with a recent rash of suspicious deaths of U.S. tourists, plus the shooting of retired Boston Red Sox slugger David Ortiz. It was unclear where Cochran um, stayed at the time of his death. TMZ said no one knows exactly what led to his death, though his sister told the outlet, Uh, that she was told that he had a heart attack. And six suspects have been detained in the shooting of former Boston Red Sox star David Ortiz, including the alleged gunman, authorities in the Dominican Republic said on Wednesday. Four other suspects were being pursued in the shooting, which witnesses uh, said was carried out by two men on a motorcycle and two other groups of people in cars, the country's chief prosecutor uh, has said. Um, Authorities identified the alleged shooter as Rolfi Ferraria, a.k.a. Sandy, Police Major General Ney Adren Bautista, uh, said the uh, coordinator of the attack was also among the suspects in custody. He claimed the man was offered 400,000 Dominican pesos, or about $7,800, to carry out the shooting on Sunday evening at the popular Santo Domingo Bar. Apparently there were 10 individuals involved in that conspiracy. Two oil tankers were damaged in a suspected attack off the Gulf of Oman early uh, Thursday. According to multiple reports, the U.S. Navy's Bahrain-based 5th Fleet told Reuters it was assisting two tankers in the Gulf of Oman after receiving two distress calls. We are aware of the reported attacks on tankers in the Gulf of Oman. U.S. naval forces in the region received two separate distress calls at 6.12 a.m. local time and a second at 7 o'clock a.m., Joshua Frey of the 5th Fleet said the fleet did not blame anyone for the attack. That came later. We'll tell you what's been said a bit later in the program. And it's been 52 years in the making. St. Uh, Blues wins the first ever Stanley Cup championship, uh, beat Boston Bruins 4-1 to in Wednesday night's deciding game for the Stanley Cup to win the first championship. The victory was 52 years in the making. Ryan O'Reilly scored for the fourth straight game and rookie Jordan Binghamton uh, stopped 32 shots in game seven of the Stanley Cup final. Washington posted a $208 billion budget deficit in May as a modest increase in revenues failed to make up for higher spending on the military and social welfare programs like Medicare, according to data released on Wednesday by the Treasury Department. The deficit was the highest ever for the month of May. Government spending rose to $440 billion. That's up 21 percent from May of 2018. Receipts increased $232 billion, up 7 percent from the same last uh, month, last year. And the House Oversight and Reform Committee voted largely along party lines on Wednesday afternoon to hold Attorney General William Barr and Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross in contempt over their refusal to comply with lawmakers' subpoena-backed demands for documents related to the inclusion of a citizenship question on the upcoming census, so reports the National Review. The contempt resolution passed 24 to 15 with Representative Justin Amash of Michigan, the only Republican to join Democrats. In support. Now, this would be the third um, either threatened or um, contempt charges actually being levied by members of the House and House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff sought uh, Wednesday to keep the fire burning over special counsel Robert Mueller's report with the latest in a series of hearings on the Russia controversy as Republicans voiced their frustrations over what they described as a grotesque spectacle on Capitol Hill. And President Trump may not alert the FBI foreign governments offered damaging information against his 2020 rivals during the upcoming presidential race, he said. Baby boomers are often blamed for putting a strain on Social Security, but a new study has found that the generation may not actually be responsible. According to a new report from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, they found that the problems facing Social Security today are a result of the way the program was developed in the late 1930s. And just days after a troubling study about the drastic rise of deaths of despair nationwide, the Associated uh, Press reports Maine legalized medically assisted suicide on Wednesday, becoming the eighth state to allow terminally ill people to end their lives with prescribed medication. On this day in 1966, the Supreme Court rules in Miranda versus Arizona that criminal suspects have to be informed of their constitutional right to consult with an attorney and to remain silent. And on this day in 1967, President Lyndon Baines Johnson nominated Solicitor General Thurgood Marshall to become the first African American justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And on this day in um, 1994, a jury in Anchorage, Alaska finds Exxon Corporation and Captain Joseph Hazelwood guilty of recklessness. And the Exxon Valdez disaster, allowing victims of the nation's worst oil spill to seek $15 billion in damages. And on this day, just a couple of years ago in 2017, Otto Warmbier has returned to the United States after being held in captivity for 17 months in North Korea. He would die a few days later. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 18 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our next segment, we'll talk with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. He is the subject of and author of Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first-hand account of World War II. Fascinating. Uh, story, although it's a bit maddening as well. Well, a senior U.S. defense official has told Fox News that it's highly likely Iran is responsible for the attack on at least one of the oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman earlier Thursday morning, confirming that the Navy saw an unexploded mine attached to the hull. Well, officials say the unexploded limpet mine discovered in the hull, or on the hull of the Panama-listed Japanese-owned. Uh, a courageous ship is the same type of mine used to damage four oil tankers last month in the same area and attack senior Pentagon officials blamed on Iran. A spokesman for Taiwan's CPC uh, Corporation oil refiner, which chartered the other boat attacked on Thursday morning, the front Altair uh, said it was suspected of being hit by the uh, torpedo, although uh, uh, this was not confirmed. Whether it be a torpedo or mines, uh, the head of the maritime security for BIMCO told the Associated Press that the incident brings the region closer to an armed conflict. The shipping industry views this as an escalation of the situation. And we are just about to close to a uh, as close to a conflict uh, without there being an actual armed conflict. So the tension uh, tensions are very high, he said. Um, Iran's foreign minister Zavid Zarif said that the uh, latest incident suspicious doesn't begin to describe what's likely transpired this morning, uh, referring to the two tankers being uh, bombed, exploded, um, whatever You want to use to describe what happened. But U.S. officials have repeatedly warned that the Iranian regime is posing a credible threat in the Middle East, prompting the Trump administration to beef up security in the region in the form of additional bombers and troops. General Frank McKenzie, the head of the American forces in the Middle East, warned during a recent trip to the region of an unspecified imminent threat from Iran. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, meanwhile, said last month during a surprise visit to Iraq that threats from Iran are specific and imminent. Well, back in May, the U.S. military was put on alert after reports that Iranian forces loaded missiles into launchers on two Iranian commercial boats sailing around the Persian Gulf, according to the Wall Street Journal. For two weeks, the U.S. shadowed the ships as the tensions continued to rise, according to the report. The ships eventually came back to a harbor and unloaded the rockets. Well, the best way to describe them is a covert, deniable first-strike weapon, the conversation um, about all of this uh, focuses on the conversion of a merchant ship for an attack in and of itself is a very provocative act. Well, the best way to describe all of this is provocative. Zarif fired back against criticism at the time, saying that the uh, the regime had the right to self-defense. We have a right to defend ourselves. So if we put missiles on our boats, it is our right, he told ABC News on Sunday. Well, a Marshall Islands-flagged um, but Norwegian-owned crude oil tanker carrying a uh, flammable uh, petrochemical product to Japan was the target, or at least one of them. The front Altair came... Uh, from Roues in the United Arab Emirates, a loading point for the state-run Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. International tanker management that operates um, the front Altair said an explosion had caused a fire on board. The firm told the Associated Press the incident is still being investigated, and it was unclear what caused the explosion. Its 23 crew members were evacuated by the um, a nearby South Korean-based Hyundai Dubai vessel and are now safe, according to the firm. The other tanker said it sustained hull damage and 21 sailors had been evacuated, with one suffering minor injuries. The vessel came uh, from Gutter and uh, part of Saudi Arabia, carrying methanol, a chemical compound used in a variety of products. And again, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has blamed Iran for the blatant assault on the oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman earlier in the day. In a press conference this afternoon, uh, Pompeo said this assessment is based on intelligence, the weapons used, the level of expertise needed to execute the operation, recent similar Iranian attacks on shipping, and the fact that no proxy group operating in the area has the resources and proficiency to act with such a high degree of sophistication. He charged that Iran is working to disrupt the flow of oil through the Strait of Hermuz, and uh, this is... Is a, a deliberate part of a campaign to escalate tension, adding that the U.S. will defend its forces and interests in the region, although he did not elaborate. Well, his comments came shortly after a senior U.S. defense official said that the U.S. Navy saw an unexploded mine attached to the hull of um, the Panama listed Japanese owned um, Courageous ship, one of the two that has been attacked. President Trump announced today on Twitter that White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders will be leaving his her position rather at the end of the month. After three and a half years, our wonderful Sarah Huckabee Sanders will be leaving the White House at the end of the month and going home to the great state of Arkansas. Trump said she is a very special person with extraordinary talents who has done an incredible job. I hope she decides to run for governor of Arkansas. She would be fantastic. Sarah, thank you for a job well done. End quote. The president has not yet named a replacement for that position. His announcement came moments before he made remarks at a White House event on its Second Chance program, boosting hiring of criminals who have served their sentences. We've been through a lot together and she's tough, but she's good, Trump said at the event on Thursday. Sanders called serving the president an honor of a lifetime, and she said she couldn't be prouder of the administration's work. I've loved every minute, even the hard minutes, uh, Sanders said at the event, calling her role the most special experience of her life, second only to being a mom of three. Sanders later tweeted saying she is blessed and forever grateful to um, Donald Trump for the opportunity to serve and proud of uh, everything he's accomplished. I love the president and my job. The most important job I'll ever have is being a mom to my kids. And it's time for us to go home. Thank you, Mr. President. Sanders is 36 and the daughter of former Arkansas Republican Governor Mike Huckabee. She worked on her father's presidential campaign during the 2016 Republican primary until he dropped out of the race. She then joined the Trump campaign and subsequently the Trump administration as a White House communications aide. She was prompted to White House Press Secretary, rather promoted to White House Press Secretary In 2017, after the president's first top spokesman, Sean Spicer, resigned from that position. If she chooses to follow in her father's footsteps, the seat for governor opens up in 2022. No comments were made as to whether or not she intends to do just that. Meanwhile, the Office of Special Counsel recommended that Kellyanne Conway be fired from the federal government for violating the Hatch Act on numerous occasions. The Hatch Act is a federal law that limits certain political activities of federal employees. The OSC, which is separate from the office with a similar name previously run by Robert Mueller, said in a scathing report released today that White House Counselor Conway violated the Hatch Act by disparaging Democratic presidential candidates while speaking in her official capacity during television vision interviews, excuse me, and on social media. Ms. Conway's violations, if left unpunished, would send a message to all federal employees that they need to abide by the Hatch Act's restrictions. Her actions thus erode the principal foundation of our democratic system, the rule of law, the OSC said in a statement Thursday, noting that Conway has been a repeat offender. But the White House showed no sign of taking action against Conway in response, calling the OSC ruling unprecedented and suggesting it was politically influenced. The Office of Special Counsel's unprecedented action against Kellyanne Conway is deeply flawed and violates her constitutional rights to free speech and due process. Others, of all political views, have objected to the OSC's unclear and unevenly applied rules, which have a chilling effect on free speech for all federal employees, the Deputy Press Secretary Stephen Grove said in a statement. Its decision seems to be influenced by media pressure and liberal organizations, and perhaps OSC should be mindful of its own mandate." To act in a fair, impartial, nonpolitical manner and not misinterpret or weaponize the Hatch Act. While the uh, charges have been levied, it's highly unlikely that there will actually be a removal of uh, the president's advisor. In other news, House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff, Democrat out of California, sought Wednesday to keep the fire burning over special counsel Robert Mueller's report with the latest in a series of hearings on the Russian controversy as Republicans voiced frustration over what they describe as a grotesque spectacle on Capitol Hill. Representative Schiff called the hearing to examine what he called the disturbing findings of Volume 1 of Mueller's report. That volume focused on allegations that the Trump campaign colluded with Russian officials during the 2016 campaign. It fi- found that there was no collusion, but disturbing findings has been the focus of these uh, ongoing hearings. Volume 1 of the report outlines a sweeping and systematic effort by Russia to interfere in the 2016 election for the benefit of Donald Trump, Schiff declared. It establishes that the Trump campaign well- Welcome to the Russian interference because it expected to benefit electorally from the information stolen and released through the Russian effort. End quote. While he said that most Americans would consider the actions of the campaign and Russian officials to constitute plain evidence of collusion, he noted that the report did not find evidence sufficient to support criminal conspiracy charges. Nevertheless, he went on to say. And contrary to the president's often repeated mantra and many misrepresentations of the attorney general, the special counsel reached no conclusion as to whether the Trump campaign's many Russian contacts constituted collusion since that term is not defined in criminal law. Well, the hearing featured two former FBI officials, while Republicans invited former federal prosecutor and Fox News contributor Andrew McCarthy to testify. McCarthy told the panel that Russia wasn't backing Trump per se in the 2016 campaign and was rather supporting the candidates seen at the time as most likely to lose. Russian President Vladimir Putin tends to back the candidates he believes will lose on the theory that an alienated losing faction will make it harder for the winning faction to govern, he said. Based on history. It is a mistake, I respectfully submit, to allow him to divide us by portraying him as one uh, on one side or another. He's against all of us, end quote. But the sharpest remark came from ranking Republican Devin Nunez, who said, uh, the Democrats' claim of conclusion has been exposed as a hoax. One would think the Democrats would simply apologize and get back to lawmaking and oversight, but it's uh, clear that they couldn't stop this grotesque spectacle even if they wanted to, he said. After years of false accusations and McCarthyite smears, the collusion hoax now defines the Democratic Party, he said. The hoax is what they have in place of all governing philosophy or a constructive vision for our country end quote. Well, the spat was the latest example of fraying tensions between lawmakers from opposing parties over the Russia probe. Democrats are keen to Continue investigating the actions of the Trump campaign and alleged obstruction of justice, and a number have opened the door to possible impeachment. Democrats on Tuesday passed a civil enforcement resolution that members say effectively holds Attorney General William Barr and former White House counsel Don McGahn in contempt of Congress pertaining to another dispute related to the Russian investigation. The Department of Justice pushed back and said it was not a civil contempt vote. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we're going to talk with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first hand account of World War II. Looking forward to it. Stay with us.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Colored people aren't accepted as airline pilots. The Negro type has not the proper reflexes to make a first class fighter pilot. Now, those words are difficult for me to utter as an African American, but these were the degrading sentiments that faced 18-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart Jr. as he journeyed in a segregated rail car to Army basic training in Mississippi back in 1943. Two years later, the 20-year-old African-American from New York was at the controls of a P-51 prowling the Luftwaffe aircraft at 5,000 feet over the Austrian countryside. By the end of World War II, he had done something that nobody could take away from him. He had become an American hero. The book? Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first-hand account of World War II is the remarkable true story of Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart Jr., one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen in World War II. In uh, the uh, the award-winning aviation writer, Philip Handelman recreates the harrowing actions, in fact you can almost feel the G-forces as you're reading, and heart-pounding drama of Stewart's combat missions, including the legendary mission in which he downed three enemy fighters. In addition to thrilling dogfights and never before told personal stories uh, from Lieutenant uh, Stewart soaring to glory reveals the cruel injustices he and his fellow Tuskegee airmen face during their wartime service and upon their return home um, and there's much that can be said about that but I'm just so thrilled to um, introduce our guest and welcome Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart to the KPDQ listening audience it is such an honor to have you with us welcome
3: Thank you ever so much. It's a pleasure being here.
2: Well, I just can't tell you how thrilled I am to be talking to you, but I need to keep myself together for the sake of this interview. Let me just ask (laughs) you, what do you hope uh, this story will inspire in others? There was a movie that was made about it. We're now reading more about it. This book has come out. What do you hope uh, those of us who are reading in the 21st century will glean from your experience in the middle of the the 20th century? Well,
3: other than a historical document, I, I think that uh, uh, I would like it to be pointed more towards youth and uh, giving them a uh, feeling of hope uh, for them to go ahead and follow their dreams and uh, follow them aggressively. And uh, if their dreams don't uh, meet fruition or they uh, uh, begin to evaporate for reasons beyond their control as to look for a uh, backup position that they might be able to take and uh, fulfill your life's ambitions.
2: Serving in the military, you were under strict orders. You are regimented in terms of what you can and cannot do. Fighting the racism that said you and your colleagues were were not capable of uh, serving as pilots in the, um, the Army Air Forces, you fought back with excellence. Talk a little bit about the challenge of not only doing well, but doing better than others, in order that you would be recognized and that you could not be denied the opportunity that ultimately you were given.
3: Well, the desire was always there. It was that uh, it was that the desire to show that uh, uh, we were not as the uh, findings of the uh, World War One uh, examiners were concerned, as far as the. Ability of the uh, African American. Uh, we wanted to show them that uh, uh, by applying us our, ourselves through excellent we can do as well, if uh, if not better. And uh, I, I I think we did prove that as far as the 1949 gunnery meet, where uh, all of the fighter uh, groups in the country were pitted against one another, and uh, they were chose actually chose. Three of their top fighter pilots and uh, sent them out to Las Vegas Air Force Base in Nevada out uh, to fly uh, for a 10 day competition to uh, follow their, uh, do the uh, uh, flying and uh, uh, with their uh, uh, guns and this type of thing. But anyway, when the competition was over, uh, the winners turned out to be the uh, 332nd Fighter Group, which is the uh, Tuskegee Airmen.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. How long had you loved flying and where did you get that love of flying from? I think it started
3: as a baby. I was born in Newport News, Virginia and uh, my folks used to put me out in the crib uh, and planes from the uh, Langley Air Force Base used to fly overhead and my parents tell me that I used to crane my neck whenever they came over (laughs) and, uh, and Google at them. Uh, When I was uh, about three years old, my parents moved to New York City. And uh, uh, we lived uh, out in Queens, uh, about a mile and a half from an airport out there by the name of North Beach Airport. Uh, It's better known today as uh, LaGuardia Airport. But I used to go out as a teenager and stand out by the uh, airport there and just watch the planes fly back and forth and fantasize (laughs) about my being a pilot up in the plane there and handling the controls.
2: Now, speaking of being a teenager and looking heavenward at those uh, aircraft overhead, you were still a teenager uh, when you uh, applied to and uh, began flight school. Tell us a little bit about um, being accepted and what that was like for you, going from dreaming of flying to actually having the opportunity to pilot a craft.
3: Yeah, that was something new uh, uh, when the war started, or just before the war started. Uh, prior to that time, is African American uh, youngsters were not accepted in the Air Corps for training as pilots or air crew members. But the uh, Air Corps recanted just before World War Two, and they said, "We will go ahead, and we will go ahead and train qualified." uh african-american applicants the only thing they must be trained on a segregated basis so a a, a, a field by the name of tuskegee army airfield was constructed down in tuskegee alabama just for the sole purpose of training these uh, pilots on a uh, segregated atmosphere
2: now when that opportunity was given Was the intent ultimately that you would fly in theater in Europe, or was it simply um, something more like a PR stunt that at least gave the impression of inclusion? What was the intention from your perspective at that time?
3: Well, the uh, Air Corps uh, professed that uh, uh, this was to be a uh, uh, an established uh, field and, uh, and an established endeavor, but Uh, We at that time did say it looked more like an experiment Mm -hmm. and that uh, it would not be a lasting type of thing. But I think that the performance of the Tuskegee Airmen uh, made it so that uh, the uh, Air Corps could not come to any other conclusion as far as that's concerned.
2: Now, you were uh, referred to as Red Tails. What was it? Uh, what were some of your fondest memories of flying with the Red Tails, as you were known?
3: Yes, the Red Tails were the combat arm of the uh, 332nd Fighter Group, or the combat arm of the African-American pilots, uh, fighter pilots, who flew overseas. There were something like 300 of them that went overseas. That certainly is not the total number of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, mm-hmm. but those that went overseas into combat uh there were about 300, as I said before, and uh, they were called the Red Tails because uh, all of the fighter groups overseas had distinctive markings on their uh, tail amp- empennage. Uh, the squadron next to us, uh, the 52nd Fighter Group, had yellow tails. The 31st Fighter Group had candy-striped tails. The 325th Fighter Group uh, had uh, checkerboard tails. These are all white groups there. And the the uh, African-American group, which was the Tuskegee Airmen, they had red tails. And there was nothing onerous about the red or the color or anything like that. It was strictly for identification mm-hmm. purposes.
2: Now, there was a movie made by the same name. It, it featured the red tails. I'm certain that you've seen the movie and may have played a role in its making. How, how well did they depict Uh, life of training, and ultimately flying in theater?
3: Well, I I have to say this is that, uh, you know, Hollywood (laughs) is established to make money. Yes, And uh, in order to make that money, sometimes they have to either exaggerate a little bit or uh, uh, do what's known as uh, make it Hollywood. So I would say that it was a wonderful thing what they did And no question about it, there were documents or parts of the film that uh, documented exactly the the true life and the true style uh, and the true meaning of the Tuskegee Airmen. But it was just a small amount. Most of it was uh, uh, was, uh, was Hollywood. Yeah, so Hollywood. (laughs) Go ahead. The film was distributed uh, all over the world. Not only that one, but there was one that preceded it by uh, HBO, called the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm-hmm. And these films were in all over the world, and it was amazing. Uh, people that never heard uh, of this group before, and uh, uh, amazing the response that it got... Uh, as far as getting recognition is concerned.
2: Yeah, much, much earned and much needed recognition. If you enjoyed the movies, I would encourage you to read the book because it tells the true story without the Hollywood uh, tinge, uh, which I suppose captures our attention but doesn't always give us uh, history. Now, you've flown 43 missions, taken down three German fighters. Tell us about uh, each one and um, what you were thinking as the third one uh, had you in its sights, which was a harrowing tale in and of itself.
3: Well, this occurred. It was a fairly big, uh, what they call, dogfight uh, uh, in uh, April 1st of 1945, which also happened to be Easter Sunday. But there were seven of us of a uh, larger group of uh, Tuskegee Airmen that were escorting bombers into uh, uh, Austria. And uh, uh, during part of the bombing mission, the, the bombers... Uh, uh, release their bombs, and they were going home, and it was felt that they didn't need the whole contingent of the Tuskegee Airmen to uh, escort them, so they, they were, it was asked that a group of seven of these Tuskegee Airmen remain behind in uh, Austria there to uh, look for targets of opportunity, like barges on the Danube River, or um, automotive uh, or freight cars that are going along, and also enemy aircraft and that's what we ran into we ran into enemy aircraft a horde of german fighter planes and a fight ensued in which we lost uh, three planes the first was uh, shot up pretty badly but uh, not so badly that he couldn't make it back to uh, friendly territory in Yugoslavia the second plane Tuskegee Airmen Uh, He was killed outright by the the, uh, German fighters that came in. The third plane, uh, the pilot in it uh, was from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His name was Walter Manning. Uh, His plane was disabled, and Mm -hmm. he had to bail out. Uh, When he landed uh, with his parachute there, there was a mob on the ground that picked him up and delivered him to the local jailhouse. Three nights later, another mob formed, broke into the jailhouse. They dragged Manning out and beat him pretty badly. But the worst thing they did is they hung him. They lynched him from a lamppost.
2: Mm-hmm. It's just a, such a disturbing story to think about. And yet that was the the concern, I think, for many African-American soldiers and pilots that what would happen to them, not just because they were Americans, but because they were black, would be far exactly. worse than, than many of their uh, their colleagues. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation again. We're talking this afternoon with Lieutenant Colonel Stewart. Uh, he is the author of Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first hand account of World War II. If you want to know what it was actually like, this is the source. By the way, it's published by Regnery History. Quick break. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have the honor of of, uh, interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Harry T. Stewart, Jr. He flew 43 combat missions during World War II, has since retired from active duty in the U.S. Air Force in 1950 for this flying prowess with the famed 332nd Fighter Group, popularly known as the Red Tails. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. He also was on the all-African-American team that won the first post-war Air Force-wide gunnery meet uh, trophy for uh, propeller-driven fighting. He was born in Virginia in 1924, uh, 24, yes. He will celebrate his 95th birthday on the 4th of July, or I should say in 2019. Um, raised in New York City, Harlem and Queens, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Stewart now resides in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And again, it's just a real honor to talk with you. Just before the break, we were talking about uh, Walter P. Manning. Uh, who was lynched um, when he uh, had to abandon his uh, his uh, plane. Uh, the way that you were treated during training while you were serving in theater and returning home to a, a country that was not as welcoming, what was it like to return to the States after the war to serve during the war, uh, knowing that uh, you were not going to receive the kind of respect that you had earned and certainly were due whether or not you had earned it uh, in this country?
3: Well, <clears throat> Disappointedly, I uh, returned to the same old, same old, in other words, the uh, prejudice, the lack of opportunities for African Americans and uh, uh, all of that that uh, I found and the nation found uh, prior to World War II uh, was the same that existed when uh, we came home. Uh, It was quite disappointing, as I said, but I did have my uh, pilot's wings i did have something they couldn't take away from me mm-hmm. and that's the ability to operate an aircraft so what i did is uh, i applied to uh, two of the airlines when i got out of the service and that was in 1950 uh as a uh to become a uh a pilot with the airlines and i was rejected uh out of hand i never got past the uh, uh, I did not even get an interview, but uh, uh, I have to say that uh, uh, the airlines recanted eventually, and you know, a few years later, going into the 60s and 70s, uh, all of the airlines began hiring uh, black applicants as a uh, as uh, air crew members uh, and as pilots. So today, uh, you'll find on every airline that there is, you'll find uh, uh, pilots who are flying as not only uh, co-pilots, but first pilots and captains. And I'll say this. uh, I was headed out of Detroit, I guess it was about uh, a year or a year and a half ago, and uh, Delta Airlines, I, I took one of their flights, and on entering the plane, I entered near one of the pilot's compartments there, and I looked in at the compartment, and believe it or not, there were two, not one, but two African-American pilots sitting in the cockpit. One was a co-pilot, and one was a captain. And to make it even more uh, uh, vivid, uh, both of them were female.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well and it 's significant to point out that you played a role in making that possible by proving that the stereotypes and the misinformation that had been spread during the First World War about the the inability of African Americans to have the kind of uh, skills necessary to pilot by piloting with excellence um, and being honored as you ultimately were, you made it possible for them, and even though uh, many at the time may not have known your name or the history. Uh, the fact that you chose excellence as a way of fighting back made all the difference for every generation that followed.
3: Well, thank you.
2: Now, what role did the Tuskegee Airmen play in uh, racially integrating the Air Force ultimately, and what did that mean to you? A primary role,
3: and, uh, <clears throat> well, I uh, I was in the fighter gunnery contest at the time. There, There were three of us that were chosen to represent our group, and as I said, there were Uh, 12 groups that uh, competed. And uh, uh, we had uh, won the uh, competition, and uh, a month after that, the airfield that we were on, uh, which was uh, all black and uh, had all of the pilots that were in the uh, uh, 332nd Fighter Group there, uh, they were completely integrated. The base was closed down, and all of the personnel Sent to the four corners of the earth uh, the uh, true integration had uh, had started and we hope to believe that it was as a result of the uh, show that we gave that the uh, fighter to meet at Las Vegas.
2: Well I don't think there's any question that that is the case and the fact that the military is largely a meritocracy today, is owing to, again, your decision to pursue excellence, despite the fact that it was not always recognized and honored as it should have been. I'm delighted that today we're at least beginning to hear the story told correctly and to honor the work that you and your, your colleagues did. All along, what the Tuskegee Airmen were working toward was gaining respect. You didn't get it in a timely manner. Uh, Although your efforts had to be recognized because of your excellence, did you ever expect that you would be revered as you are now, and finally should uh, should be?
3: Uh, No, I never, never thought I'd be uh, or or the Tuskegee Airmen would be revered as they uh, as they are today. As I said, when we when we landed uh, from overseas and came back home, it was the uh, same old, same old, Mm -hmm. and uh, we thought that uh, uh, that was it. There wouldn't be any more. discussion or recognition as far as the uh, group was concerned but uh, thankful to many people many politicians to the uh, much of the press and uh, uh, some of the uh, political people is that uh, that changes around and today i think we're getting the accolades and the uh, recognition that, uh, uh, that we feel as though it was just deserved
2: I know that you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you really wanted to encourage, inspire, and set an example for young people. Um, How did you process and respond when you were told as a teenager that you can't, you shouldn't, but persevered and continued to the point of excellence and the kind of recognition that literally shifted the military world uh, altogether? What do you have to say to them today as they aspire to what perhaps uh, others are saying they cannot or should not?
3: Well, I would say you pursue your dreams and uh, don't let situations like that uh, that we faced and overcame, don't let them uh, deflect or deter you from your ambition there. Uh, Go at it. Uh, Keep your eye on the prize there and uh, a little setback here or there, you know, just go ahead and Charge it up to experience there, but go after it and continue to go after it and pursue uh, excellence, as I said before, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll see your rewards at some day.
2: Well, my nephew, who followed your example and was inspired by it, is now one of the youngest captains in the U.S. Navy serving uh, currently in the Middle East. And I thank you so much uh, for the service to our country, for your. Um, Your determination to serve with excellence despite how you were treated and for uh, taking the time to write your memoir, if you will, and to share that with the rest of us. Thank you so much.
3: Uh, Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you. Again, one of the one of the best interviews in terms of, you know, my heart wanting to. Communicate with someone I have long admired, so appreciate that. Once again, the book is "Soaring to Glory," a Tuskegee Airman's firsthand account of World War II. Philip Handelman uh, wrote the book along with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. He's in his nineties, as I mentioned earlier, so a little help is probably uh, uh, probably needed. Uh, but the lieutenant um, served in the 332nd Fighting Group, also known as the Red Tails, with honor. All right, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, so you can get caught up on what's happening in the world, and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Well, House Judiciary Committee Democrats announced on Wednesday that former White House Communications Director Hope Hicks has agreed to testify before the panel next week after she was subpoenaed in May concerning special counsel Robert Mueller's report. The interview is going to be held on the 19th, and it's going to be a closed-door transcript. Uh, but it, the transcript will be released. Uh, House Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Jerry Nadler says Hicks uh, is a long time. Uh, Aid to Trump was mentioned throughout Mueller's report, which Democrats claimed included unexplored evidence of obstruction of justice. Hicks didn't immediately comment. She is the executive vice president and chief communications officer for Fox Corporation. Fox News is a subsidiary of Fox Corporation. In a statement, Nadler uh, seemingly recognized that Democrats might not get all the answers to their questions. Robert Trout, an attorney for Hicks, had told the panel in a letter last week that there were important differences between documents and testimony related to Hicks' work on Trump's campaign as opposed to her time in the White House, which may be protected by executive privilege. Well, earlier this month, the White House instructed Hicks not to turn over certain documents related to her time in the White House, citing that privilege. Ms. Hicks understands that the committee will be free to pose questions as it sees fit, including about her time on the Trump campaign and her time in the White House, Nadler said. Should there be a privilege or other objection regarding any question, we will attempt to resolve any disagreement while reserving our right to take any and all measures in response to unfounded privilege assertions. We look forward to her testimony and plan to make the transcript promptly available to the public. Well, Democrats subpoenaed specifically requested, uh, among a slew of other materials, information from Hicks concerning the Republican Platform 2016 provisions relating to Russia and Ukraine, including but not limited to the exclusion of language related to providing lethal defense weapons to Ukraine and the inclusion of language about providing appropriate assistance to the armed forces of Ukraine. Mueller's report found no proof of any connection between the platform provision of Ukraine and any misconduct. The development came amid a fury of aggressive legislative activity from House Democrats. The full House effectively voted earlier this week to hold the attorney general and former White House counsel um, in what Democrats characterized as contempt after complaining that the two had improperly refused to turn over documents and testimony. We won't go over that. Again, however, meanwhile, Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley vehemently criticized lawmakers for failing to address one of the darkest results to emerge from the current immigration crisis child smuggling rings. It seems to me, he said, that the exploitation of children by cartels, human smugglers on the scale that you are describing, is absolutely unbelievable. And quite frankly, the refusal of this Congress to act to do something about this humanitarian crisis is absolutely unbelievable and absolutely indefensible, Hawley said during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Tuesday. Well, the hearing featured testimony from acting Secretary of Homeland Security Kevin Mclean. The DHS chief broke down how the immigration crisis is escalating, how Congress must take action in order for the country to manage the hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants reaching the U.S.-Mexico border. Thousands of migrants are appearing with a child, he said, knowing full well that current U.S. law will allow them to be released out of uh, detention before their case can be processed. In May, we had 88,000 families cross the border. That incentivized by the fact that they can't be held for the full court proceedings, the acting secretary told the committee. It's not a great leap of imagination to think that people might try to exploit that fact and bring a child who's not their own, maybe even the same child more than once, which we have heard alleged to have been the case. McLean said the agency has uncovered three significant child smuggling operations in recent time. The same child was used, uh, children rather, are used numerous times by smugglers, to bring in different migrants in one child smuggling ring, eight children were used to bring in 36 different adults into the United States. In another notable example given during the hearing, a 51 year old man who was subject to a DNA test admitted to law enforcement that he actually wasn't related to the six month old child he brought along with him. That man, in fact, had paid roughly $80 to rent the baby. They advertise it. They promote it, McLean said, of the migrant smugglers who promote their services to locals. It's ubiquitous in Central America. Advertisements on radio, advertisements on social media. This is a very well-known fact, end quote. Well, Holly, a first-term senator, made the case that... The migration crisis was more than just innocent people in search of a better life. We've heard it said that crossing across the southern border is an act of love, but for the cartels, it's an opportunity for exploitation of children. It's an opportunity to cash in, Hawley said. It's about profit. It's about money. It's about their criminal enterprise, end quote. Well, he then ripped Congress for its refusal to pass legislation that would fix the humanitarian crisis. Meanwhile, House Intelligence Committee Chairman um, Well, that's not the the uh, I wanted to mention that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, on Tuesday uh, congratulated the president for reaching an agreement with Mexico to stop the flow of Central Americans into the country, saying it sounds to me like a pretty big win. Uh, Speaking at a news conference, uh, he said now that the U.S. has received Mexican cooperation. It's time for congressional Democrats to step up and said that the Senate plans to address the humanitarian crisis at the southwest border next week. I don't know um, why it was necessary for this agreement between the United States and Mexico to serve as an incentive. Certainly seems to me there have been enough uh, details given up to this point that it should have been a priority. But nonetheless, whatever it takes for them to move in the right direction, I suppose, is a good thing. Democratic presidential candidate John Hickenlooper on Thursday attacked rival Bernie Sanders' vision of an America remade under democratic socialism and chastised others in the 2020 race for not repudiating the political philosophy. Well, the former Colorado governor said Bernie Sanders was wrong to call for policies such as Medicare for All that would dramatically increase public spending and government involvement in Americans' daily lives. Hickenlooper called for less expansive changes to the regulated capitalism that has guided this country for over 200 years. The Democratic field has not only failed to oppose Senator Sanders' agenda, but they have actually pushed to embrace it, Hickenlooper said, at the National Press Club. Well, Hickenlooper's campaign has struggled to gain traction, and he ranks toward the bottom in public opinion polls among the large field of candidates. But recently, he's drawn attention for railing against socialism, perhaps most notably during the recent California Democratic where he was booed loudly for deriding the idea. Democrats must say loudly and clearly that we are not socialists, he said at the time. If we do not, we will end up helping to reelect the worst president in the country's history. Uh, um, uh, socialism is the most efficient attack line Republicans can use against Democrats as long as President Trump uh, is at the top of the ticket, end quote. Well, his remarks followed Sanders' impassioned defense on Wednesday of his Democratic Socialism philosophy well a um, pro small government waste a government waste group has identified millions of taxpayer dollars allegedly frittered away on absurd nature related airmarks including nine million dollars to quarantine fruit flies nine million dollars and thirteen point eight million dollars to manage wild horses now is this the role of the federal government well these Revelations are inside the 2019 Congressional Pig Book. It was released yesterday by Citizens Against Government Waste. Well, that report identifies what it describes as egregious examples of pork barrel spending in Congress, drawn from fiscal year 2019 appropriations bills. Well, this year, the group said it identified $15.3 billion in airmarks, an increase of 4.1 percent from the $14.7 billion last year. Pushing pork doesn't drain the swamp. And it won't restore integrity to Washington. That's a quote from the president of Citizens Against Government Waste. Tom Schatz, in a statement. Well, Schatz wrote in an op-ed that perhaps the most flagrant earmark this year is $16.7 million for a research organization called the East-West Center, added by Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz, a Democrat out of Hawaii. His earmark represents the center's entire budget, keeping it alive even though its counterpart, the North-South Center, stopped receiving federal funding in 2001. The East-West Center should be able to stand on its own without taxpayer support as well. The report identifies other pricey airmarks that include $65 million to help recover Pacific coastal salmon, $12 million to control aquatic plants, $7.9 million to purchase fish screens, $863,000 to eradicate brown tree snakes in Guam. The fruit fly program apparently was resumed after a 10-year pause. Further, according to the report, the nine million dollar earmark this year for the program represents a one thousand eight hundred and nineteen percent increase over the roughly half million dollars set aside for fruit fly research, eradication and quarantine a decade ago. It's also the third largest earmark ever for this purpose, the report says. Well, Mr. Schatz said these examples show that earmarks still corrupt Congress, waste taxpayer money and erode trust in government. The group advocates enacting a permanent statutory statutory ban on earmarks. Yeah, well, good luck with that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
2: Twenty minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. The US government posted two hundred and eight billion dollar deficit in the month of May. Um, a modest increase in revenues failed to make up for higher spending on military and social welfare programs like Medicare, according to data that was released yesterday by the Treasury Department. Well, the deficit was the highest ever for the month of May and wider than the average forecast of one hundred and eighty five point five billion dollars in a poll of uh, analysts. Government spending rose uh, to four hundred and forty billion dollars. That's up twenty one percent from um, May of 2018, uh, receipts increased $232 billion. That's up 7% from the same uh, month last year. So we're not keeping up with uh, on pace with our spending, which spells trouble down the line. But you don't have to worry because it will fall to your children and grandchildren. So you don't really have to concern yourself. We make it impossible that for them to have a prosperous future. Well, that's just on them because we're doing just fine, kicking that can down the road. Senator James Lankford on the uh, uh, Trump administration's trade negotiation strategy with uh, China and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supporting pay raises for Congress um, resulted in um, an actual effort to see if um, they could get a pay raise, members of of Congress. Now, I would, would like to see a laundry list of accomplishments that have benefited the country across the board in the last Let's say two cycles. Lawmakers uh, decided to put an initiative to raise their pay on hold. Uh, There was opposition in both parties, but they still enjoy six figure pay and a host of other perks and benefits that apparently just are not enough. Now, I'm not suggesting that members of Congress don't work hard, but, you know, so do a lot of people, especially the people who are paying those salaries. The measure would have uh, raised their salaries by forty five hundred dollars. Lawmakers haven't been um, given a pay raise since 2009. I think if they were as productive as I think we need to see them in, I don't know, 2019, maybe that would be a consideration. But the New York Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supported the measure. She says that it would prevent some lawmakers from wanting to keep dark money loopholes open. She also said everyone should get cost of living increases to account for changes in the U.S. economy. So, if you give people more money, then they're not, they're not going to violate the law. It's not a matter of principle. It's a matter of um, desperate need on the part of members of Congress, her logic would argue. Well, the current salary for most lawmakers is $174,000, very close to what Clark uh, gets in a lifetime. Uh, it would be closer to 210900 had Congress received the pay raises annually since 2009, according to data from the Congressional Research Service. Some lawmakers, however, receive more, including Speaker of the House. She receives $223,500. The president pro tempore of the Senate, which is uh, Chuck Grassley, 193400 The House Majority Leader, $193,400. Um, House Minority Leader, 193. Uh, That's also true for the Senate Majority Leader and the Senate Minority Leader. You sometimes wonder why on earth would anyone want those positions? Well, the perks help. In addition to six-figure salaries, being elected to office comes with a number of perks and benefits. Lawmakers have access to both 401k-style plans and pensions. The Thrift Savings Plan is a tax-deferred investment similar to a 401k plan. Lawmakers can take a full pension at the age of 62 if they've served for at least five years, and even sooner if they've served longer, age 50, for those who have completed 20 years and age 25 or or, or any age after 25 years. Amounts vary based on time served and salary, but may... um, uh, but may not exceed 80 percent of the final salary they receive. Senator um, Rick Scott out of Florida and uh, Mike Braun, uh, Republican out of Indiana, uh, Pelosi. They've all served for 33 years, so they'd be eligible for a funded pension worth more than $102,000 if she retired this year. Uh, those two lawmakers unveiled legislation this year to end taxpayer-funded congressional pensions. We'll see what happens there. I doubt it will uh, succeed. Uh, all members also pay into and are eligible for Social Security. Now, surviving spouses and families of uh, lawmakers who have died will receive a full year's worth of salary. According to the um, Office of Personnel management. Federal employees enjoy the widest selection of health plans in the country. Certain eligible members can receive health insurance over the course of a lifetime under the federal employee's health benefits program, uh, according to Axios. And then there are allowances. The member's representational allowance can be used by representatives for official expenses like staff, travel, mail, office equipment, district office, rentals, stationery, office supplies. As of uh, 2017, the allowance for personal uh, personnel, rather, was 944,671. The limit on permanent employees was 18, so you can have as many as 18. Office expense allowance varied based on uh, distances between a member's district and the capital. For senators, the uh, average allowance for official personnel and office expense is about $3.5 million. And that's per senator. Each senator has authorized home state office space and federal buildings, as well as furniture in Washington, D.C. and state offices. Uh, lawmakers also get free reserved parking at D.C. area airports while they can uh, reserve seats on multiple flights, only having to pay for one, according to Bloomberg. And while the District of Columbia prohibits smoking in public places, that law does not apply To the functions or property of the federal government, according to the New York Times, that means that lawmakers can smoke in their offices, which apparently was a habit of John Boehner, among others. And while lawmakers are often busy moving back and forth between the Capitol and their districts, they do get every major holiday off in addition to a number of recesses. So um, if you don't think the salary is quite up to snuff, $174,000, if you're just a lawmaker, and that's um, currently in Congress, There are other perks to consider. Well, the Oregon Senate voted Tuesday to prohibit single-use plastic shopping bags, joining a growing movement to reduce plastic pollution in the ocean, which we've just learned uh, shockingly recently that is uh, far worse than we anticipated. The Senate voted 17 to 12 to keep grocery stores and restaurants from providing uh, these plastic bags. Stores uh, would still be able to offer recyclable plastic and paper bags for up to uh, Uh, for a five cent fee, something opponents had uh, punished said would punish customers. The bill will now go to the governor's desk for consideration. She previously spoke in support of the measure. I have no doubt she'll sign it. Oregon would join California, New York, and Hawaii in banning single-use plastic bags. Now, I'm not sure what that means for produce. I think those might be recyclable, but I'm not sure. Something we use once shouldn't be able to pollute our environment for hundreds of years, says Senator Michael Dembrow, a Portland Democrat behind the measure. Democrats were a stop short of pushing through their full environmental agenda when the uh, then-Senate rejected a a ban on food containers made from polystyrene, also known as styrofoam. Uh, Republicans were against both measures, argued that the bans uh, stifled technological innovation. They also said lawmakers should let the free market come up with solutions to the plastic problem. This might serve as an incentive to do so more quickly. Supporters said that the bans were uh, uh, meant to reduce the ever-increasing amount of plastic pollution in the oceans. And less than a week ago, closer to a week now, Oregon's idea for a landmark carbon reduction program appeared ready to move. A budget subcommittee had just approved a final set of tweaks to House Bill 2020, and pass the bill on. The proposal to create a cap-and-trade system in Oregon would need just one more vote in the full budget committee to finally land in front of the full House and Senate. But in the final days of a legislative session, less than a week is a very long time. Rather than proceeding to that final vote, the bill moved back. It was taken up once again before the Natural Resources Budget Subcommittee. Um, Every day is like a roller coaster. That's what uh, Senator Michael Dimbrow, a Democrat out of Portland, a chief architect of that proposal, says at issue uh, were a flurry of last minute amendments over the contentious proposal. Some aimed at um, placating industrial opponents. Others meant to calm the nerves of senators who could uh, tank the bill. One of the amendments was filed by state to Senator Betsy Johnson out of Scapoose, an influential co-chair of the budget committee. Um, uh, As OPB first reported last week, her proposal at the behest of industrial opponents of the bill would have significantly weakened provisions or, according to other interpretation, made it a little easier to live with. Others' proposals were crafted more recently as Senate Democrats aired concerns that jeopardized their support for the bill on the Senate floor. Over the weekend, there was some interest in maybe there are some other changes Uh, Dimbrow suggested should be made when all was said and done. The Natural Resources Subcommittee wound up adopting a handful of amendments. The committee also rejected uh, Johnson's amendment on party line vote and lawmakers turned down a proposal to remove an emergency clause that would put the bill into law when it's signed by Governor Kate Brown, though the full uh, program wouldn't begin until 2021. So while it was thought that perhaps it was um, uh, essentially dead in the Oregon legislature, Not altogether clear that that will, in fact, be the case. And finally, officials managing the massive Portland building reconstruction categorized some spending as part of other projects to avoid disclosing a 10 percent cost overrun. That's according to city auditors in a report published on Wednesday. Your tax dollars at work. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
2: Thirty-six minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released a lackluster jobs report on Friday, falling short of most expert predictions and continuing to make the case that bad economic policy like tariffs will not serve US interests in the long term. Well, the report showed a gain of 76,000 jobs falling well below the 180,000 predicted by experts. In addition, March job gains were revi- revised rather down from 189,000 to 153,000 and the April numbers lowered from 224000 to 263000 for a total shortfall of 75000 in previously estimated new jobs over the past two months. Wages for all employees increased by 6% to $27.83 over the course of the year. Average hourly earnings have increased by 3.1%. That's great news, even though it falls slightly short of the predicted 3.2%. Now, this is still relatively um, encouraging, but it does reflect that um, the uh, tariffs and the threat of tariffs does have an impact on um, what happens on the ground. And they're predicting that uh, if these continue and they're used as political tools, it will continue to have an impact, um, unflattering, unfavorable to the economy. Well, the city council in Wascom, Texas, outlawed abortion procedures on Wednesday and declared the city a sanctuary for the unborn. Now, Sanctuary City is kind of a big deal these days, very popular. The move was pushed by Right to Life of East Texas and precedes another bill Texas lawmakers are pushing. That bill would require doctors to care for babies born alive following a botched abortion. Abortions are not permitted in the state of Texas after 20 weeks, the Washington Post affirms. Wascom sits on the Texas and Louisiana border and is the first city in Texas to declare such a measure. There's no abortion clinic in Wascom. Congratulations, Wascom, Texas, uh, for becoming the first city in Texas to become a sanctuary city for the unborn. By resolution and the first city in the nation to become a sanctuary city for the unborn by ordinance, said Right to Life of East Texas director Mark Lee Dixon on a Facebook post. Although I did not have my, I, I did have my disagreements with the final version. The fact remains that abortion is now outlawed in Wascombe, Texas. Well, all organizations that perform abortions and assist others in obtaining them, including Planned Parenthood and any of its affiliates, um, Jane's Due Process, and others that are listed, they pro-choice, are now declared to be criminal organizations in Wascombe, Texas. Uh, Dixon added. Well, Wascom Mayor Jesse Moore said that the city may likely get sued over the measure, according to the Washington Post, and most likely we will wind up getting sued if this is uh, passed. Uh, It could be, it could go rather to the Supreme Court. We don't have the possible millions of dollars that it would take uh, to take it to that level, uh, added the uh, alderman, Jimmy Dale Moore, who uh, voted for the measure. We can't pay those kinds of attorney's fees, uh, fees, rather the city's uh, doesn't have that kind of money, but supporters of the bill are not worried about monetary issues, telling local media that God will take care of them. So Texas uh, uh, town has declared itself a sanctuary city for the unborn. That's Wascom, Texas. And NPR recently re-upped its guidance to staff about how to discuss abortion giving several um, states recent decisions to decriminalize infanticide or, conversely, more strictly limit abortions. To its credit, the news organization published this uh, guidance publicly. To its shame, it uses a pretense of scientific objectivity to cover a deeply slanted take on this controversial topic. That includes um, a mind-bending instruction from Joe Nell, an NPR editor and a correspondent Uh, on NPR's science desk, saying the term unborn implies that there is a baby inside a pregnant woman, not a fetus. Babies are not babies until they are born. They're fetuses. Incorrectly calling a fetus a baby or the unborn is part of the strategy used by anti-abortion groups To shift language, uh, legality, public opinion. Use unborn only when referring to the title of the bill and after President Bush signs it, the Unborn Victims of Violence Law. Or qualify the use of unborn by saying what anti-abortion groups call the unborn victims of violence. The most neutral language to refer to the death of a fetus during a crime is fetal homicide. So there you have your pseudoscience lesson. We're not talking about... Children in utero, we're talking about fetus, which sounds a whole lot better than a developing human uh, in utero that, by the way, are viable at earlier and earlier ages these days. Anyway, this is mind numbingly stupid. It also reveals a bias against pro-life groups, which is no big surprise because it implies that if a pro-life group says the truth, it can't be the truth just because the pro-life group says it. If it's accurate, if it's scientific, it doesn't really matter. If it's favorable to their cause, referring to pro-lifers, then it must not be repeated on NPR. Don't call a baby a baby. Well, former Vice President Joe Biden came out uh, last week against the Hyde Amendment after previously supporting it. I mean, that's the thing to do these days if you want to get elected. Um, Biden said at a gala hosted by the Democratic National Committee in Atlanta, if I believe health care is a right, as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. Well, for decades, Congress has kept taxpayer funds from paying for abortions due to the leadership of an Illinois congressman. Now, that seemed like a reasonable compromise for those who abhor abortion and those who insist it's the most important right extended by the Supreme Court. Representative Henry Hyde was behind the amendment, first passed in 1976, that prohibits use of federal funds for most elective abortion. Now, federal funds are nothing more than taxpayer uh, monies. Melanie Israel, a research associate in the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation, says in an email that the Hyde Amendment is one of the most significant legacies of the pro-life movement. One of the pro-life movement's first victories following the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions back in 1973 that effectively legalized abortion on demand across the country came about uh, thanks to Congressman Henry Hyde of Illinois in 1976. He championed an amendment um, to the annual Health and Human Services Appropriations Bill that prohibited the department from expanding, or rather expending, taxpayer dollars for most abortions. Since then, similar language has been included in appropriation bills for HHS as well as other departments and was upheld by the Supreme Court in 1980. Some of the things you need to know. It's been included in some form, in legislative form, since 1977. The Supreme Court has upheld the Hyde Amendment. It uh, has received bipartisan support since its uh, passage back in the early, uh, the mid '70s, and it protects religious freedom. The American Center for Law and Justice also says that the abortion funding ban is a critical safeguard to protecting religious freedom. Those who oppose the practice as murder are not uh, required to underwrite it. The Hyde Amendment may have saved lives of um, two million. Uh, Since 1976, the best research indicates that the Hyde Amendment has saved over 2 million unborn children, or fetuses, if you're working for NPR, uh, states a 2016 report from the Charlotte Lozier Institute, a pro-life research organization. The report also looked at how the Hyde Amendment may have affected Medicaid recipients, saying... Uh, Three separate studies that analyzed Medicaid recipients in Illinois, Texas and Ohio found that after the Hyde Amendment took effect, the birth rate among women on Medicaid increased by anywhere from 11 to 15 percent. The average increase in the Medicaid birth rate was almost 13 percent. So if the number of Medicaid births in a given state increased from 1,000 to 100, I should say, 1,130 after the Hyde Amendment took effect, 130 people, or approximately 11% of those born to a mother on Medicaid, would owe their lives to the Hyde Amendment. Alternatively, one of every nine people born to a mother on Medicaid in a state not funding abortions through Medicaid owes her or his life, to the Hyde Amendment. Somewhat speculative, but I think you get the point. And over half of Americans don't want taxpayer funds to go to abortion. A 2019 Marist poll found that 54% of Americans do not support tax dollars going to pay for abortions. The poll was commissioned by the Catholic organization Knights of Columbus, found that 39% of Americans backed taxpayer dollars funding abortions. And by the way, Canada has now said they will approve the screening of the pro-life movie Unplanned. Uh, It's taken some time and there was a um, a blanket uh, rejection earlier on. Uh, But now they have made the decision that it will be screened in Canada. So kudos there. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I don't know about you, but this news lineup has just been exhausting. And to quote the fictitious character from the Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch of the I think she was the West. She the main from the West. What a world, what a world. Um, it is a world that we live in that 's got lots of challenges, ups and downs. I hope we 're praying people not just for our own interests but for the interests of others who are impacted by what 's going on as well. Pastor Andrew Brunson expressed his concern about young people who whom he says uh, he 's concerned are not prepared for what 's coming now. Pastor Andrew Brunson was imprisoned in Turkey for his Christian faith. You might recall his story. he was imprisoned for two years there before the Trump administration helped him. Um, I was going to say earn his freedom, but that would not be the right way to say it. I will just say helped free him in October. And he was speaking to the Southern Baptist Convention, which has been a meeting this week. He spoke on Monday night. He says he believes the next generation is going to experience more intense Christian persecution. Certainly what he experienced falls under that category. What many of us in this country experience, I don't think quite reaches the threshold of persecution, but there certainly is opposition, in some cases strong opposition. Uh, and oppression in some cases. But the North Carolina native uh, missionary warned the thousands of pastors who were gathered in Birmingham, Alabama, to be prepared. He prayed for the president in the Oval Office when he returned to U.S. soil. He opened his remarks on a, um, a blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness uh, panel by asking those in the crowd to raise their hands if they prayed for him so that he could thank them and point to the importance. Uh, of those prayers for the nation of Turkey overall. So I appreciate it. And it says something about his uh, character that he not only um, coveted the prayers of individuals who are praying for him during those two years of his captivity, but he was also uh, calling for the the prayers for the nation of Turkey overall. He said, Your prayers sustained both me and my wife. Uh, the Lord just made me a magnet for prayer. I think someday you're going to see that it was really something tremendous that God was doing, end quote. Well, the evangelical pastor shared that he was uh, suicidal during the two-year imprisonment, but was sustained through Bible reading and prayer, especially from his wife, Noreen. Uh, pastor Brunson shared that the Lord spoke to him in 2009 and warned him that in Turkey, difficult times were ahead. So while he could not have anticipated what those difficult times would be for him in particular, he did anticipate and felt that he had been warned. Pastor Brunson added, I don't think that we're prepared for what is coming, especially the next generation. I fear that many of us are complacent and we're unaware. Uh, and this means that people in our churches are going to be blindsided by what comes. You are the ones as pastors and leaders of churches who have the task of preparing the next generation. Now, if we are men and women of faith, if we're spending time in God's word, then we shouldn't be surprised. I think we always are because we anticipate that uh, and believe that it happens to others in other circumstances. But the scriptures are very clear. Jesus' words himself warned that tribulation would come. There are generations who have managed to live without it, but those are the exceptions and not the general rule. Well, the missionary of 23 years, Pastor Brunson, was in Turkey. He was arrested. He was charged with terrorism and espionage and accused of Christianization, which was deemed a hostile act. He told his fellow pastors that persecution is nothing new, but they must be prepared for it. I think it's interesting to point out and important uh, to mention that there are pastors like Pastor Brunson, who um, has the benefit of a spotlight uh, focused on him. He was an American citizen a missionary in Turkey, and for two years uh, there were efforts to free him. There were focused prayers for him, people praying uh, for him by name. That's not always the case when church leaders in various places around the world are in prison for much longer than two years, sometimes for decades. I've had the opportunity while in China to meet with some of those who survived their captivity, primarily in the People's Republic of China, spending decades in prison. And to hear their stories— First hand accounts of what that was like and how God ministered to them uh, through that. I think I've mentioned here before the one pastor who rejoiced that he was given the worst assignment in that prison where he was responsible for working in the dung heap. And I'm not sure what you do there, but that was his assignment. Uh, He was a pariah to his fellow prisoners because of his Christian faith. But he said he rejoiced in having been given that job because it meant for the only time of his captivity during the course of the day, uh, he was alone. He could sing his hymns at the top of his voice and he and God um, could be there alone together. He could pray out loud. He could sing out loud. And he stood in our meeting, this quiet meeting in a hotel room room. Where we had slipped in and slipped out, hoping that we weren't detected, and he sang uh, the hymn, "I go to the garden alone," saying that that was the song that ministered to him because there he was in this filthy environment, uh, but in this this beautiful a place where he met with God. Well, Pastor Brunson explained that um, his time in prison tested his love for God, but that he resolved never to compromise his relationship with God. I made a decision toward the end of my first year in prison that was a turning point for me. I decided that I am going to fight for my relationship with God. If I lose my intimacy, my closeness to him, then I've lost everything. Gained some perspective there. Well, the Southern Baptist uh, annual meeting concludes uh, concluded, I should say, on Wednesday night with a panel of, on sexual abuse, a topic at the forefront of this year's meeting, as we discussed earlier this week. As membership has been steadily declining among the 47,000 churches in the denomination, one of the decisions that was made is that uh, accusations of sexual abuse that are not handled according to uh, the church's standard, which is very strict and holds those uh, accountable who are... Uh, found guilty that that is ground that is now found to be grounds for expulsion from the denomination. So they took some very uh, concrete uh, steps toward uh, justice for those who have uh, identified themselves as victims. In any event, Pastor Brunson, having lived through two years of persecution and who knows what kind of opposition and persecution he might have experienced before his imprisonment has uh, issued a warning to pastors as well as a charge that uh, they are responsible for, at least in part, helping to prepare congregations for the challenges that lay ahead for us here in this country. And if we are serious readers of the scriptures, we know that in every place on the earth, the day is coming when those who are followers of Jesus are going to pay a very high price uh, for faithfulness. So just wanted to share what Pastor Brunson had to say earlier this week. Well, tomorrow on the program, as you know, it's Friday and we try to lighten up and focus our attention on the lighter side of the news. And I think we have some fun things uh, lined up for you. So I hope you plan to uh, to join us for that. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation in the first hour of today's program with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, he is the essentially co-author of Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first hand account of World War Two. This is what he lived through. And it's really such an inspiration Um, This group of um, of airmen have been such an inspiration to me as an African-American young person growing up and uh, with members of my family having served in uh, virtually every war that this country um, has had since the First World War that I'm aware of uh, their example and what they endured. Uh, has been very meaningful. It played a significant role in the meritocracy that we now see in the U.S. military. You can pick that up on our podcast. Go to kpdq.com, The Georgine Rice Show, and you can listen to that interview, which was in the second half of the four o'clock hour, or for that matter, any of the interviews that you hear here on the program. Make note of the date and time, and you can check it out on our podcast. Well, I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And I'd like to extend a personal invitation to join me on Friday as we lighten up, taking a look at the lighter side of the news. But if there is breaking news, I promise you we will break in with that uh, in a timely manner. So hope you'll join us and have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.